Progressive Rugby League. Hello, John Duncan here, making a confession to you, our friends in Progressive Rugby League, that it doesn't take much for me to lose my bearings. I hop out of a lift at work or a train carriage at the station, and pretty much every single time, I go the wrong way. It's a little embarrassing, but I need information, signpost maps, to help me understand where I am and where things are at. Similarly, you can lose your bearings if you find yourself hanging around the same people all the time or spending too much time in the old virtual echo chamber. Everyone seems to be saying the same thing in furious agreement, and then you step out in the real world and you're kind of surprised when things aren't as straightforward. People have different views? Who are these people? Is this how people think? I've just read a book called Code Wars, The Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival, conveniently the subject of today's show. It's a book that forensically analyzes Australia's unique four football code landscape, their relative popularity in place in our national psyche, and the key events that led us to where we are today. And let me tell you, reading Code Wars was a weird experience for me. Fantastic book, may I say, but for some reason the rugby league content caused me to regularly pace around the house. I guess it was my way of reacting to and processing information that challenged my default view. And that default view honed through years of hanging out with rugby league mates and flicking through rugby league Twitter was that despite all the major missteps and self-inflicted feet shootings, rugby league was doing fine, thank you very much. Basically joint leader of the Australian football code pack, neck and neck with Australian rules. And then I read this book suggesting that, you know what, maybe that's not quite the case. Huh? And then it has the hide to back it up with reams of evidence and reasoned analysis. I didn't know how to feel. What, all of a sudden I can't rely on my carefully curated life interactions to give me an objective view of the world around me? Look, somewhere within this slightly exaggerated overview of my emotional state is a substantial chunk of gratitude that Code Wars forced me to take a step back out of my comfy cocoon to get a clearer view of how things really are and why and what it could mean in the future. Because at the end of the day, despite all the biases that I semi-consciously cultivate, I really want to see the wood for the trees. I, I don't want to not see the wood for the trees. You know what I mean. Dr. Hunter Fujak is a senior lecturer in sports management at Deakin University, has worked in sports consultancy as an audience and sponsorship analyst for Australia's largest sporting leagues and events, and has consulted for some of the country's biggest brands. He is also the author of Code Wars, The Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival, this incisive, thorough and clear-eyed view of the Australian football code landscape. And it's a pleasure to welcome him to the show to chat about the book and the real state of rugby league in Australia. Hunter Fujak, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast and congratulations on an excellent release. Thank you very much. Very humbling to hear a sincere description and great to be on as a, as a long-time listener to your show as well. Thanks. Thanks so much, Hunter. Really appreciate it. Now, before we get stuck into the stats and facts, can you tell us why you wrote the book? What gap were you trying to fill here? Yeah, so the book really is a combination of probably about 10-year period of research through both my commercial research in sport and general management and firstly a master's in sort of audience and media sport measurement and then PhD in terms of sport consumers in Australia's sport marketplace. So it's kind of this combination of 10 years of research on this topic and I think so more deeply to answer your question, you know, why have I written this book? Why did I do a PhD and, and devote 10 years to this topic? It's that, you know, we have this very unique sport marketplace in this country that's easy to take for granted you know living here and there really is nowhere else in the world that really has this hyper intense competition between sports and between codes 
yeah, simultaneously has this very intricate equilibrium or balance between them where there isn't necessarily one absolute dominant code. So mm. we'll talk about all those details in a sec, but I think it's an interesting topic by virtue of this very unique sport marketplace we have. And then what's really interesting, as you alluded to, is we have all these eco chambers where, and even in broader media, where people are incentivized to focus on their individual code or advance their individual code. And there's obviously a lot of tribalism associated with that. And mm. if you actually look in terms of what's available for the general public, there really hasn't been a book that has attempted to cover all four codes with any form of neutrality. And that's really where this book tries to give readers that chance to you know, have a bit more of an enlightened or progressive um, view of the football marketplace. All righty, let's cut to the chase here and lay the foundation for our chat. In brief, from your research and analysis, what is the status of the four football codes in Australia? Like I said, I came into this book thinking that Australian rules and rugby league roughly were neck and neck. You know, you've got some rugby league states, you've got some AFL states, much of a muchness, right? So school me, what's the reality? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a very easy top line story where most people would be aware of who pick up a newspaper and that is that, you know, the AFL overarchingly is the strongest code. If we take a, a very zoomed out lens to incorporate financial impact, participation, cultural importance. So if we look at our broadest possible lens, I think most people can appreciate AFL is probably the strongest code overall with rugby league, not necessarily too far behind with a bit of a gap in the pack to uh, soccer, which I'll call soccer here, but in yeah. other places might get me lynched um so i'll call it soccer here and rugby union is our kind of laggards in the pack but you know the book speaks to a more nuanced perspective behind this very obvious top line observation and that is firstly that the gap is growing so you know the afl between 2012 and 2019 as a central organization basically derived as much revenue as the other three codes combined if we look at a club like the collingwood magpies and take out the distribution it gets from the AFL. Basically, their revenue reached $70 million, which is already more than half of what Rugby Australia or the FA, FFA gets mm. per annum. So, you know, some of your bigger AFL clubs, if they're able to sign their own individual broadcast deals, would already be commercially larger than Rugby Australia or Football Australia. Mm. So it's one thing to say that there is this big gap, but what's more interesting, I suppose, is how that gap is growing or shrinking over time. In the second year of Rugby Union's professionalism, their revenue was about a quarter of the AFLs. Mm. By 2019, it was down to 14% of the AFL. So while the whole sport market has grown with professionalism and commercialization, you know, it's benefiting the top end of the market a little more than the bottom and creating a break in the pack between our big two codes and our sort of little two codes. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. And I should say for our listeners, this book obviously looks at all four codes pretty equally, but obviously this chat, we're going to focus on rugby league and rugby league's place within that landscape. Okay, so... Let's try lay out this systematically to give our listeners as clear a picture as possible. So you've referenced several different data sources in the book, and they all point in roughly the same direction. And that's the thing. It's impossible to say any piece of research is 100% accurate. But when you're getting the same kind of story from very different sources and methodologies, it becomes pretty compelling. So let's have a look at some of these sources. And a warning for listeners, it's going to be a few stats spat out over the next few minutes. So, so bear with me. First, let's look at the broad state of play for the four codes and their comparative popularity. So from your own research, I believe, Hunter, that you conducted for your PhD, 39% of the Australian population is interested in Australian rules, 31% in rugby league, 23% in soccer, 17% in rugby union. So this would encompass the whole of the sports, not just the main competitions. So for soccer, for example, that 23% 
is made up of A-League fans, Premier League fans, etc. Same for Rugby Union. That's encompassing Super Rugby and International Rugby, etc. So that's a good place to start. We can call that the lie of the land. And if we dig into that further, why are those figures the way they are? We'll focus on Australian Rules and Rugby League here, the two biggest codes. You reference findings from a commercial research panel from 2017, which finds that in Rugby League cities, Sydney and Brisbane, 14% of those populations are solely interested in Rugby League and no other code. Meanwhile, in Australian rural cities, the singular interest in their code is far greater. In Melbourne, 34% are solely interested in Australian rules and no other code. In Adelaide, it's 25%. Perth, 28%. Tasmania, 35%. Now, your analysis of Google search trends also supports this. Here, you compare relative search levels for each code's main competition. And similarly, the intensity of searches for the AFL is much higher in AFL states of Victoria, South Australia, WA, Tasmania than it is for the NRL in rugby league states of New South Wales and Queensland. So in New South Wales, of the searches for the four codes, 64% were for the NRL, 28% AFL, 6% A-League, 3% Super Rugby. Now I'll focus on NRL and AFL because the others are in single figures throughout. Queensland, it's 61% NRL, 34% AFL. In the ACT, that's an interesting one, 48% AFL, 45% NRL. Now let's look at AFL states and territories and let's see the difference. Victoria, 88% of the searches for the four football codes are for the AFL, 8% NRL. So we think back to the NRL states that were in the 60s. WA is the same, 88% AFL, 8% NRL. South Australia, 89% AFL, 7% NRL. Tasmania, 91% AFL. So much lower penetration of the other codes in those AFL states. Finally, and and when I say finally, there's a lot more research in the book, you do reference some research from Roy Morgan Research, a big research company in Australia, who note that there are 7.87 million fans of AFL clubs in Australia. That's roughly 41% of the Australian population aged 14 plus. 5.6 million fans of NRL clubs, which equates to 31%, and 2.75 million fans of A-League clubs, equating to 14%. So it all largely points the same way. Australian rules leads the way comfortably. Now, my question, Hunter, is did any of this research or other research surprise you as you collated it all? I think, you know, the most interesting thing in the story is that if we just look at an aggregate number on popularity by itself, it somewhat obfuscates the fact that there is a significant cultural distinction between Australian rules and rugby league. Mm. You know, on face value, 39% versus 31% doesn't seem like a particularly significant difference. Mm. But when we look at the individual city levels and when we look at the data around how many people support multiple codes, mm. which we in marketing refer to as you know, uh, someone's repertoires of consumption, the greatest success of the AFL isn't that it's necessarily come into its northern markets and replaced rugby league interest. It's that they've been able to come into these northern markets and join the repertoires of these existing interests in rugby league. Mm. So, you know, the fact that if you walk down the street in a place like Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Tasmania, you know, the fact that every third person you meet as you walk down the street is going to be solely interested in AFL and no other form of football Mm. is extraordinary. So uh, one of the numbers we haven't mentioned is what proportion of people aren't interested in football Mm. overall or in sport overall. And so in basically the South 
southwest half of the country, you've got three types of people. You know, about a third of people aren't interested in football, a third of people are interested exclusively in AFL, and a third of people are interested in one of the other codes or a mix of AFL and another code. And so it really speaks to the cultural concentration of Australian rules of football in their half of the country. Mm. Whereas when we look at the rugby league side of that, that only 14% of people in Sydney and Brisbane are uniquely interested in rugby league indicates, uh, as I'm sure many people would realise if you've spent time in both Sydney and Melbourne, Mm. that there just isn't that same cultural strength that rugby league has in Sydney by comparison to the cultural strength and pervasive strength of AFL in Melbourne. And that's not apparent when we look at that 39 versus 31% national percentage, but when we look at the breakdown of the repertoires in a city per city perspective, Mm. we realise just where the strength of the AFL sits in this country. Yeah. Now, before I go on, Hunter, I can hear rugby league fans in my ear screaming, ask him about the TV ratings and the fact that State of Origin is one of the three most watched programs in Australia every year. Ask him about that. And I will do so. You know, Hunter, I, in a previous life, I used to work in what I guess is called the advertising media industry, where we used to essentially buy advertising space for our clients. So we had access to all the TV ratings data. And while I haven't been in that industry for quite a while, From the data that is freely available online, the trends seem the same. When you compare the two competitions, the AFL and the NRL, the AFL gets more TV viewers. Yes, the NRL rates better on Fox and in the regions, but linking to what we were talking about previously, the strength of the AFL in those AFL strongholds is so strong that it pushes cumulative viewership for that competition higher than what it is for the NRL. Now, where Rugby League claws back is through its other assets, particularly State of Origin. Now, this, along with International Rugby League, when it's played, Cy, basically brings us pretty close to level pegging. From a cumulative TV audience perspective, I think two or three years ago, Rugby League pipped Aussie rules, but the last I saw it was comfortably the other way around. But this can change year to year based on who's doing well and who's sucking. So, firstly, is that consistent with your understanding? And secondly... How should we incorporate and interpret TV ratings into our analysis and understanding of the lie of the land? It's a really great question and one that, unfortunately, the answer to which might not be one that your listeners would be thrilled to hear. And so the first we need to actually think about the process of TV ratings, and this is a subject I teach at Deakin University specifically around sport broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's increasingly difficult to make sense of television ratings because of the fragmentation of how ratings are measured on an analogue system, whereas consumption is increasingly in digital platforms. So increasingly, you know, using ratings as a yardstick between codes or longitudinally over time is being eroded. So that's one caveat to keep in mind as, as you see future numbers reported on TV audiences because it's simply, it's a bit of a wild west at the moment in terms of how we adjust these new norms around viewing sport content through apps. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it is true to say that Rugby League has been very successful in generating the nation's highest audiences through State of Origin. And I think that is undoubtedly a great success for Rugby League. And, you know, it's been said previously, the State of Origin is worth 20% of the value of broadcast rights Mm. single-handedly. So an incredible achievement. And I think 
part of the reason it's been able to achieve that success is because it has been built up to be a, a TV event mm. of sorts. And where it's benefited strongly is in terms of its time slot. So we saw last year when it got shifted out of the midwinter to the end of season, the ratings were quite disastrous because mm. of the timing of that particular Origin series. But typically, the reason it's so strong is because it's held midweek in a time slot where it has basically 100% unopposed air. And so obviously it generates really big ratings in Sydney and Melbourne and you know northern New South Wales, regional Queensland, and that's the predominant driver of those really big audiences. Mm. But one of the significant impacts of Origin is it's one of the few games where Origin is actually able to generate decent TV audiences in the southwest part of the country. You know, if Origin was played on a Saturday night and, you know, viewers in Melbourne could alternatively watch AFL, there would be a big drop in Origin audiences. But by virtue of its scheduling midweek on a Wednesday, it's actually really conducive to getting really big national audiences because it's just a, you know, show-stopping event. So part of its success is definitely its growth as an event, but also part of it is due to its scheduling. And the NRL learned the hard way last year what happened what yeah. happens when you muck about scheduling? Yeah, no, very good points. I guess uh, from a rugby league perspective and talking about infiltrating other markets, I guess rugby league could argue that they get maybe four events that infiltrate other markets at a semi-decent level, the grand final and the three-state of origin, where Australian rules probably only has the one, which is the, the grand final. But like, like sorry, go ahead. Yes and no. I'll just jump in there for yeah, a sec yeah. to clarify that. For the better part of several decades, the AFL, and I've, I've, this is quoted in the book, yeah. you know, the AFL has consciously uh, left money on the table in return for making their host broadcasters broadcast every single Swans and every single Giants mm. game into Sydney. Yeah. Now, that may still be on a secondary channel, typically, but you have to remember, for the better part of almost a couple of decades now, every single Lions game, every single Suns game, every single Swans and Giants game mm. has been available to residents in their local state. Yep. So, you know, one of the marketing theories that gets embraced, you know, in a reader-friendly format in the book is about, you know, how accessibility to product is a big driver of their popularity. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to say that the AFL's broadcast strategy to make sure all Swans games, you know, all Northern teams are available to local markets. Yes, they don't generate huge audiences, but definitely have this cumulative effect over time. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. It does make a difference over time. And I guess what I was uh, getting at was that, Rugby league is good at making people watch it on TV, but it doesn't necessarily mean it translates to people taking the sport to their hearts. And State of Origin is one of those interesting events. It's such a compelling event that even people who have a fairly sizable disdain for the game still can't help but tune in sometimes. It, it tends to rate pretty well, like you said, in the non-rugby league states, uh, particularly Melbourne. But as the rest of the research shows us, the game hasn't been able to translate that into enough of what you might call genuine fans compared to the way a strong run from the Brisbane Lions can really get the Brisbaneites on board for the AFL. So that really, you know, emphasizes your point, I guess, of just the low level constant effect of being on every week compared to that bang of three times a year. Yeah, and I think you know, it speaks to one of the deeper challenges that the NRL faces, and I'm sure we'll circle back to this question later on, is that if we look at the metrics where we'll use NRL and rugby league interchangeably, I guess, you know, if we look at where rugby league is really strong metric-wise, it's in television ratings and it's in digital performance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the NRL has more Facebook and Twitter followers. Its overall digital footprint is a lot stronger than the AFL and all the individual clubs have more followers than AFL clubs. And that's great, 
But at the same time, you know, you can follow every NRL club in about two minutes if you're good with a smartphone. Mm. Whereas, you know, the NRL has struggled to break 300,000 members for the past few years. It's completely flatlined. Whereas, you know, the AFL sitting at 1 million members, you know, an average crowd that's over two and a half times the size. So, you know, in terms of the metrics that count, unfortunately, the NRL isn't necessarily winning the metrics that count. Yeah, no worries. Now, while we're sort of still around the topic of television, let's talk about the importance of free-to-air television or how important it's been up until now. Can you outline the case studies that you reference in the book of British Rugby League and Australian Rugby Union and how their fortunes changed after going behind a paywall? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a really interesting comparison case study, remembering that the book is obviously code agnostic. So mm-hmm. every every code basically gets its share of praise and criticism throughout <laughs> the book. And so rugby union's biggest mistake in this country was really not pulling the trigger after they've only basically had five broadcast deals in their whole existence. You know, their first one from 96 to 2006 went for 10 years and then mm. they've had five-year extensions since. And strategically, their biggest error was not capitalising on their momentum after the Pro Rugby Union World Cup. You know, their biggest mistake was not then using that as a platform, you know, six to launch onto free-to-wear and get the growth that they required in terms of mass exposure. Mm. And so we can see the counter-effect or an equivalent effect to rugby union's mistake in this country with British Rugby League. So at the same time as obviously the NRL was commencing and we everything was happening on this side of the world, at the same time, British Rugby League officials chose to quit BBC for a deal on uh, their pay TV equivalent. And essentially what, what happened out of that was a disastrous impact in terms of their exposure. So in their 1995 season, their last season on the BBC, they had a cumulative audience of 49 million viewers, which was the highest it ever was or ever has been. Mm. And basically from 1996 on B Sky B, the cumulative audience went from 49 to 7 million viewers. Mm. And so essentially what that did was obviously, yes, they got this huge paycheck in their first cycle, but essentially that they sacrificed a lot of exposure. And what market research over there found out was that between 1996 and 04, interest in rugby league in Britain literally halved from 20% to 10% of the general population. So, you know, it's a bit of a false economy because, yes, you know, they had this huge initial offering, but their exposure was cut by 20% and accordingly their interest halved in the general population in the space of just seven years. That is very interesting. And and we have a lot of UK listeners to this podcast. So I did take a special interest into this part of the book and I kind of looked into it a bit further myself and noting that 1995 had that cumulative audience of about 50 million British watching rugby league at some point on TV. That was a rugby league World Cup year that kind of might have helped. 94, though, was a, a kangaroo tour year, which had about 40 million. 93, which had neither, was about 30 million. So it's still a very high level of cumulative audience for those years. And also, I found a study that showed that prior to 1995, when British rugby league sold itself to Murdoch, they were getting around 1.3 million viewers every Saturday through the coverage, like you said, on BBC's Grandstand program. And then they went behind the paywall and the average audiences sunk to around 250,000 per game. So this is from a Sheffield Hallam University study authored by Robert Wilson. And subsequently, like the research you reference in the book, it showed that between the years 96 and 03, interest halved from 20% to 10% in only seven or eight years. Incredible. So that shows the effect of being behind the paywall, I guess. But I guess the argument from rugby league's perspective would be, yeah, but we got £87 million for five years and they couldn't really turn that down and and pretty much all the scholars 
of British Rugby League will tell you that the Rugby League didn't have much choice, such were the game's dire finances at the time. Uh, but on the other hand, the British game is about to sign a, a broadcast deal that won't be much higher than that original deal all those years ago. So uh, very easy to say in hindsight. And like I said, they were desperate at the time, but it doesn't seem to have uh, worked out very well in the longer term. Yeah, and I mean, it's of course impossible to know how history would have played out. You know, it's highly likely... And the book charts how, you know, the growth of British football through the English Premier League, of mm. course, grew to become ubiquitous. And that was probably inevitable in either sense. But, you know, we've seen British Rugby Union really have a renaissance of sorts mm. uh, in recent times. And so really, I guess there's a really strong juxtaposition there between, you know, if you looked in the British context, it's literally diametric to the Australian yeah. context. Um, and a large part of that has to do with broadcast strategy. And yes, you know, there was an original £87 million deal but in the end that was reduced anyway so they they added a few years and so when you actually look at what they received once they you know extended the contract and reduced the initial contract it certainly looked to be um again easy to say in retrospect but certainly didn't work out too well for them and it's hard to see in their particular market where the growth potential is obviously i'm sure listeners here have followed with interest you know what happened with toronto wolfpack and Mm. you know planned global expansion and all that in that respect british rugby league is a bit like australian soccer where there's almost these psychological cycles where you know they go through a cycle of thinking expansion's great and being optimistic and then reverting back to focusing on traditionalism and mm. yeah i think british rugby league has suffered from not really sticking with one strategy yeah. for long enough to you know bear any fruit from it unfortunately very interesting now while on tv deals obviously the landscape is changing before our very eyes yet free-to-air tv still gets way way more eyeballs than any other platform how much longer do you see free-to-air tv being the flagship component of broadcast deals yeah it's a really interesting question i mean even if we look at the existing deals right now i mean the hard to know exactly uh, nrl's doing their best to hide their information as best they can but you know even if we look at the current deals the existing the previous nrl deal was 360 million a year of which nine was only 95 if we look at the afl deal for 2023 2024 of the 950 million seven is paying 300 so you know already free to wear is the lesser contributor of rights fees mm-hmm. to these major codes now what's interesting about that is you know, if we look, these are some pre-COVID projections, of course, these might change a little bit with the recent information, mm. but, you know, free-to-air advertising revenue was projected to be flat through to 2023. So it was about $3.2 billion in advertising revenue projected to be flat, which means, you know, the, the overall advertising market across outdoor advertising, radio advertising, digital, etc., mm. you know, is going to grow from about 16 to $23 million, which means if free-to-air advertising is staying flat, it means that free-to-air as a proportion of all advertising is going to decline from about 20% to 14% through to about 2023, 2024. Mm. So it's not really a good macroeconomic sort of sign for free-to-air television in terms of its growth profile. Mm. And of course, if free-to-air broadcasters aren't going to make more revenue from advertising, then that obviously places a natural constraint on their ability to then purchase content on the other side of the equation. Mm. So obviously sport leagues being the providers of content really can't in some ways expect to uh, solicit bigger rights fees when the networks themselves aren't generating more revenue than they have Mm. in previous years. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line, isn't it? You want the exposure of free-to-air, but uh, you also want the money of the pay TV. So yeah, like we've been saying, it's uh, it's a tricky one and 
sometimes they don't get it right. Probably uh, the most interesting one to watch at the moment is actually Netball. So okay. Netball signed a deal with KO Foxtel and will be broadcast on KO, obviously the digital streaming app for sport. Mm-hmm. And they've launched this thing called Freebies, whereby there is some sport content in front of the paywall mm-hmm. and some content behind the paywall. And so it is the belief of Foxtel that KO Freebies legally can act like a free-to-air network in that stuff that previously Channel 9, 7, and 10 have had exclusive rights to through legislation, known as the anti-siphoning list. It's their belief that if KO Freebies was to sign the AFL or NRL and put games in front of the paywall, that would constitute a legal transaction. And so I think the big question mark is will we see, you know, Foxtel through KO potentially try to grab NRL or AFL rights in the future and just capture all of it and basically yeah. put a little bit in front of the paywall as an act like a free-to-air provider, but predominantly be obviously a pay provider into yeah. a hybrid style model. Yeah, that is very interesting. We'll have to keep our eyes peeled for that. Now, Hunter, I want to go back to some of the research I quoted earlier, the Roy Morgan research on club support, where there was something like 7.87 million fans of AFL clubs and 5.6 million fans of rugby league clubs. Just extending on that, perhaps the most surprising thing for me and most concerning was that the, the Roy Morgan research points to a rather steep decline in NRL support. Now, Roy Morgan has been around for decades and decades and has long asked the, the question of club support. And as you quote in your book, the NRL fan base of 5.6 million is 16% lower than it was 20 years ago, despite a population much higher than it was 20 years ago. And by way of comparison, AFL support is roughly steady, slightly lower. So this kind of tells us there has been a shift over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, can you take us through the drivers for that shift where the AFL has held firm and the NRL has receded? Yeah, it's certainly a strange finding. It's not something I would have necessarily predicted on face value simply because, you know, sport content has never been more available to people. And hence, you would expect, you know, if something is more ubiquitous in your face all the time, you know, it was very surprising not to see more growth in the composition of supporter bases. Mm. And the fact that it's something that's happened across AFL and rugby league is in of itself an interesting sort of data trend. Mm. But most certainly, Roy Morgan's been doing it for a very long time, over 20 years, and, you know, longitudinally measuring it the same way. So, you know, we have some confidence with the data they presented. You know, I think there's a few factors at play here. Firstly, you know, the composition of the NRL has changed over the time of that sampling, and that certainly has an impact on, and if anything, it might exacerbate that fall, given that there's obviously a new team in, in the Gold Coast Titans who's come into that. But there are definitely broader trends which is impacting the total fan base of the NRL clubs. You know, if we look at the last 20 years, obviously we've seen the impact of Super League and mm. Super League battles. I'm not sure if we want to kind of go into a little more detail there. Yeah, we'll go into that shortly, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think, you know, it is surprising on face value. I think there are some broader cultural trends around NRL fandom where there's almost a stigma associated with being a rugby league fan that mm. isn't necessarily an equivalent in being an AFL fan. You know, rugby league has prided itself on being sort of a working class game and that's been kind of very much part of the DNA of rugby league. But at the same time, you know, that's maybe that kind of language or symbolism has also restricted the, the code's growth in terms of other demographics, you know, white-collar workers, certainly with women as well in terms of some of the atrocities that we see, which I think are having more cultural weight over time, whereas previously maybe they were slightly more immune to those atrocities. So 
I think there's some broad cultural trends which are certainly affecting the total size of the fan base. Yeah, and I want to get to the effects of the Super League war in a sec, but also just wouldn't mind just focusing for a moment on what the AFL has done right in these 20 to 30 years because obviously in the 80s you reference in your book that the AFL had half their clubs kind of going bankrupt and they're all in a bit of a mess and then they, they turned to the independent commission and, and they really haven't looked back. Is that a fair summation in five or ten words? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this comes back to probably the value of poker machine money to rugby league has been simultaneously a blessing and a curse because mm. obviously, you know, for a long period of time, poker machine revenue is what basically funded the game and certainly funded the poaching of players from rugby union at the very least. Mm. So for a long time, it seemed to be a positive for the game. But unfortunately, with this source of revenue that was very much unrelated to the actual operation of football itself, you know, it created almost like a commercial or a cultural laziness in terms of trying to develop football clubs that was self-sufficient. And that's distinct from the AFL model whereby at the same time the independent commission comes in, half the clubs are bankrupt, and they basically, that sort of marks the starting point of them moving to a membership-based culture where they really tried to lock in fans to make that financial commitment through membership. Mm. And really, you know, it took the NRL 20-plus years to have that same light bulb moment to realise, wait a minute, you know, we need to focus on becoming a membership-based mm. or a membership-orientated sport. So that's really the competitive advantage they've had. And more than that, you know, the AFL benefit from what I kind of call this sort of incremental dividend of making really sound decisions in the same way that, you know, if you put a million dollars in the bank and probably getting 0.1% at the moment, but, you know, if you're getting your 3% dividend every year, you know, your interest is compounding and your balance is growing, it's kind of like an equivalent to the AFL strategy whereby because they've made very sound, concerted efforts over time, they've kind of reaped this incremental benefit over time Mm. from those decisions. You know, the Australian National Football Council, which was kind of the precursor to the national governing body of the AFL, you know, they've been around for over 100 years. Mm. Even going back to 1906, they were distributing profits out of Melbourne to buy footballs and merchandise and and jumpers to send to the northern states and to New Zealand. So, you know, they've been consciously trying to promote their code quite effectively for over 100 years. So it really shouldn't be surprising that there's this sort of incremental dividend from having made those investments for a long period of time. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the effects of the Super League war. And, you know, when you look at the data that you present in the book, it's quite significant and permanent. And now some, some more stats from your book. I think 1994 was the closest rugby league got to AFL attendances from a cumulative perspective you know, at 78% of total AFL attendances. From an average crowd perspective, I think in 1994, rugby league crowds were about 50% of the size of AFL crowds. Now they're about 40% roughly. Uh, in 1994, 10.4% of the Australian population attended a rugby league game. By 2010, this had declined to 8.9%. Now that doesn't sound too bad, but consider this. All other codes increased attendances in that period. AFL from 13.3% to 16.2%. Soccer from 4% to 5.4%. And rugby union from 2.5% to 3.3%. Now, another point to make is that female attendances have increased for all codes, but by a smaller proportion for rugby league compared to the other codes. Male attendance for rugby league has actually declined, as you reference in your book. Now, probably the, the most compelling stat on the immediate effect of the Super League war is that between 95 and 99, AFL attendance grew from 1.8% to 4.3% of the population in New South Wales, a huge jump in only four or five years. And 
and I can share my anecdotal experience from being a Sydney school kid during the Super League War. And in 94, I was in the sixth grade. It was rugby league and nothing else, uh, basically. A couple of years later, rugby league was absolutely on the nose. You're almost embarrassed to say that you liked rugby league. The cool kids were getting into AFL and rugby union, even the NSL. That impact still lingers today. You know, I can't tell you, Hunter, how many people I've come across my generation and perhaps slightly older who have kids now that when I mention I like rugby league, they talk with fondness about their childhood and adolescence following the game. And then I ask them if they still follow it. And quite often the answer is no, and that their kids are swans, tragics, or members at Sydney FC. It's like Super League tore off one of rugby league's limbs. The game's soldiered on admirably, but it has never quite been the same. Yeah, and uh, the book speaks to a very specific case study. Uh, there's this book called The Convert, which uh, this gentleman wrote who was a tragic Bears fan. And he literally wrote a book which almost read more like a manifesto around his conversion to becoming a Swans fan. Mm. And so caught up with him pre-COVID and, you know, it was about, I think it was 20 years post 25 years post just to see hey you know how'd that play out for you you know where are you today as a sport fan and not only was it the case that he basically never watched another game of rugby league and had been basically a Swans member for the following you know 25 odd years Mm. but the fact that his two children would go on to never support a rugby league club and only play AFL so Mm. you know the impact of it wasn't just in the immediate impact but it was the generational impact of then you know having people walk away and then as you point out or as that example points out children that don't get exposure to rugby league they become soccer kids or AFL kids and it's really that generational impact and then those grandchildren will be in the same position and mm. I guess that circles back to the start of our conversation about how you end up with a fragmented sport culture in Sydney mm. by comparison to a very consolidated AFL centric culture in Melbourne and that's yeah. I guess one of the explanations for why that's occurred. Yeah that's right yeah now Hunter you also note that the damage of the Super League war was exacerbated by the NRL's approach to rationalisation of the Sydney clubs. Take us through your thoughts there. Yeah, and I think you know, this is a really important point, and some people might say, oh, this is another one of those woulda, coulda, shoulda moments, but realistically, if you're an attuned sport administrator in this time, it's really not unrealistic to expect that maybe better decisions should have been made in this period of time than what we had eventuate. You know, it's important to note, even if you go back to 1992, predating all the Super League War stuff, there was this thing called a Bradley Report commissioned by the Australian Rugby League, and this independent report even concluded from the ARL's perspective that the competition should be 14 teams of which there should only be five Mm. from Sydney and nine from elsewhere so it wasn't like this shock from the blue that there were too many Sydney teams Um, Mm. it was well understood that you know much like Melbourne AFL you know there was simply too many rugby league teams in Sydney and too few elsewhere so there's probably a few big mistakes made along the way in terms of this once in a generation or you know once in a century opportunity to restructure what rugby league looked like in this country. The first mistake was there was this obviously a memorandum of understanding signed to create the NRL and basically there was a sort of document which dictated well we have this many licenses available uh, of which there were 14 and this is the order in which teams will be admitted and basically the hierarchy of teams to be admitted into the NRL was firstly if you were a merged Sydney club you were the first first in uh, secondly if you're a regional club which is basically all non-Sydney teams you were the second 
group in. And then thirdly, if you're a standalone Sydney club, you're the third group to come in. Mm. And so really we can think about the decision-making made over this time in terms of, I guess, what scholars would call kind of a game theory approach to understanding risk and reward in decision-making between the various clubs in the NRL. So Basically, the decision was made that there was going to be a 6-8 split. There would be a minimum of six Sydney teams, a maximum of eight Sydney teams, and vice versa for non-Sydney teams. So the big thing to remember is that there was always going to be a 6-8 split Mm -hmm. or somewhere in between. And really, the first big failure of the NRL wasn't to merge more of the Sydney teams. And the reason that happened was because essentially there weren't that many regional teams left by the end of 1998 to actually form the NRL in 1997. So, you know, with the addition of Melbourne in 99, there were basically six regional teams left and that guaranteed eight spots for Sydney teams. So it just didn't really create any competitive intensity among the Sydney teams to merge because they knew that eight of them would get spots in the NRL. Mm. Whereas if there was still, you know, Adelaide or Perth in the mix to be in the NRL come the year 2000, it would have created more pressure on the unmerged Sydney teams to consider a merger because there would have only been six franchise slots left for Sydney teams. Mm. So the fact that a lot of regional teams folded before the mergers were considered meant that there really wasn't much pressure on NRL teams to merge. The second and probably more critical mistake in the process was that the NRL basically let clubs be autonomous to decide who should merge with who and they basically had what you could describe a relatively laissez-faire approach to who would end up being merged and that probably has led to some relatively illogical mergers at the expense of what would have been much more stronger or optimized mergers today Mm. so the example i talk about a lot in the book is west tigers now obviously the west tigers have won a premiership and they're relatively amicable partners you know today in the modern environment but they're far from what you would call a logical partnership because you know they're basically separated by tens and tens of kilometers there's no logical midpoint stadium where you know they could play to satisfy both geographically distant groups and demographically they're not really at all alike they're two just very demographically different groups of people in Balmain versus Campbelltown so there's very little congruency between the two halves of the merger Mm. and it was basically one where it was just a convenience Now, the reason that's happened is because if we look at the process of figuring out who should merge, you know, the only logical combination of who should merge is two weak teams, right? Because if going from the being the third ranked group to the first ranked being, you know, merged Sydney teams, if you're a strong Sydney team, you know, there's no need to merge because you're already a strong team. You know, if you're two strong Sydney teams, it makes even less sense to merge because you each know that you're independently strong. The only logical merger that the structure of the mergers allowed for was basically two weak teams that were basically at the bottom of the hierarchy to jump to being in the you know tier one category. And so the most logical merger that should have probably happened was the merger between Canterbury Bankstown and Western Suburbs mm. because you, you would have had two clubs that are basically geographically aligned to each other, which would have thus created a zone, which is now one of the biggest growth corridors in Australia, in the southwestern corridor of Sydney, but they weren't necessarily fierce rivals that couldn't have overcome rivalry as a, as a North Sydney Bears and a Manly couldn't. Mm. So it's interesting to note that Western Suburbs actually did approach Canterbury first to see if they would consider a merger, mm. and that was knocked back, and they basically had to land with Balmain just to make a merger work to guarantee their survival. Yeah. So 
Yeah, we've ended up in this position where we get three games at Campbelltown, we get three games at Balmain, three games played at a big stadium that doesn't really suit any fans. And instead, we could have had this, you know, Southwestern powerhouse club that could have played in the southwest of Sydney and really become a club. Yeah, and we, we think about Canterbury Bankstown, they're basically geographically very constrained by Dragons and Parramatta. So they've got very little growth outlet. You know, Campbelltown would have been a great growth outlet for them in terms of junior growth and, and commercial growth. And that, you know, that's really the merger that should have happened. It didn't simply because, you know, clubs were left to their own devices. Yeah, uh, rationalisation without strategic vision, I think you say in your book, which is probably pretty accurate. I mean, just in the West Tigers defence, uh, I have a lot of friends who are West Tigers fans. Yes, it is the weirdest merger of all time. And it does take the term Wests in its broadest context. Because like you say, there is 50 kilometres between Campbelltown and Leichhardt, but it somehow has kind of worked. Uh, I don't know how. Uh, it's probably just down to Benji Marshall, essentially. Benji, Benji Marshall and Tim Sheens. I think, uh, like you say, they're not even good on the field, yet they are still quite popular, and I think they turned a profit a, a year or two ago, uh, which is very rare for a rugby league team. So, yes, taking all that into account, somehow it's still kind of worked, but you're right, it could have been a lot smoother. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's definitely, compared to obviously what happened with the Northern Eagles, there are worse merger outcomes than what they have become. But at the same time, you know, we have the Southwestern MacArthur Bulls team in the A-League now playing 12-plus A-League games in Campbelltown mm. every single season. How are West Tigers placed, you know, playing three games a year at Campbelltown? You know, yeah. in a region that's very demographically diverse, that kind of already aligns to the soccer-supporting population, I think that's a very big mm. threat to their so, you know, rugby league's already lost northern Sydney and it sort of risks mm. endangering southwest Sydney in the process. Yes. Now, just linked to that, your analysis of the comparison between Sydney NRL clubs and Melbourne AFL clubs is quite an interesting one. Now, what are the factors that make it seem like the saturation of Sydney clubs is a drag on the NRL, while the saturation of Melbourne clubs seems anything but in the AFL? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and, of course... At the same time as the NRL had these questions about a Sydney over-representation, Melbourne, of course, went the same way. The closest near merger was the Hawks and the Demons. I believe it was the Hawks who voted yes and the Demons voted no. So they, they were halfway to a merger and didn't quite get one themselves. But it's fair to say overall, Melbourne has been much more stable in terms of its club composition. Of course, also being you know an extra couple of decades older as well means that a lot of their clubs are fundamentally much more established than, than rugby league clubs. But I guess if we come back to the core question of why do Melbourne clubs seem to not suffer from the same saturation, it comes back to some of the key statistics we mentioned earlier. So 56% of Melbournians are interested in AFL, so that's about 2.84 million people, versus 41% of Sydney siders, which is about 2.17 million, so that's you know, 700,000 people in the city already more interested in the local code but then you know it comes back to what we mentioned earlier about what proportion of those people are solely dedicating their interest towards one of those codes so in melbourne 61% of people interested in afl are exclusively interested in afl so that's 1.74 million people exclusively interested in afl in melbourne that number is 34% in the nrl which equals 0.74 so 740,000 people so there's literally a one million person difference in in five million person cities mm. in the amount of people who are exclusively interested in their local football code. When you think about that, 
you know, that, that would go some way to explaining why the AFL can sustain so many clubs because there are just so many people there solely interested in those teams. Whereas, you know, you've got nine Sydney teams, only 740,000 exclusively supporting mm. fans. It you know, obviously is thinner slices of bread. Yeah, and also you, you mentioned in your book the fact that the AFL has centralised the way you can go and watch games of AFL in Melbourne, you can only watch it at the MCG or at the Dockland Stadium. Whereas in Sydney, they're still playing in their sort of suburban outposts. And you kind of make the point that that kind of makes it more like a brand. So that the Richmond Tigers, I think Collingwood only has like 8,000 people who actually live in Collingwood. And they have like 80,000 members and get 70,000 to their game. So it's more of a brand. Whereas the NRL, because they still play in their suburban grounds, it's more locational. And, and Sydney is already a very pockety city. So that probably plays a factor as well, does it not? Yeah, definitely. You know, rugby league interest in Sydney is very region centric and that's not good for the NRL simply because that means that, you know, the one million people in northern Sydney basically don't have a team to support and that very much affects those percentages around popularity and interest. Mm. And yes, one hypothesis, and definitely a hypothesis that I advocate, is that the AFL bit the bullet and moved to centralised stadiums, and therefore supporting a team became much less about the specific region you're from. And, you know, I can sort of, I can share that anecdotally, being a, being a lecturer at a Melbourne university, you, you meet people and the, the team they support isn't necessarily as correlationally linked to where they mm. live. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Sydney, you know, the teams we support are very much still region-centric. And so at some point, it's fair to say that I don't think the NRL, in, in a longer-term sense, the NRL can't maintain parity with the AFL if it has Sydney clubs that are still getting 12,000 people per game. You know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a viable long-term path. And the only way to get average attendances to grow you know, it's a, it's a complete red herring that suburban stadiums get bigger crowds. You know, the suburban stadiums get some of the lowest crowds in the NRL. You know, it's about getting the right games into big stadiums to encourage big crowds mm. for the right matches. And at some point, there has to be a bit, bit of that culture change where if you're a Seagulls fan, you're willing to watch games at the SFS and, and move beyond Brookvale. You know, so it's a bit of a challenge and maybe that's an insurmountable challenge. Time will tell, Mm. but it's definitely a big cultural distinction between Melbourne and Sydney. Now, back on the club side of things, you note Sydney rugby league clubs have always had external cash cows helping them survive, be it poker machines or TV money, and that has effectively stunted the game's growth. Can you take us through that theory? Yeah, so it's really interesting. There's probably one person who would be the most informed person to speak on some of these issues, and that would be firstly Graham Samuels, who has been a commissioner for both the AFL and the NRL. Mm. And, you know, has had the luxury of, I guess, comparing the governance of the two codes and basically reading between the lines of some of his, I guess, refrain commentary, you know, he's basically suggested that by the time he quit the AFL Independent Commission, uh, the NRL Independent Commission, the Independent Commission in Rugby League was still 20, 30 years behind AFL. And so there have been decisions made that probably haven't been so good in terms of promoting the club autonomy. The book talks about the fact that the decision to fund clubs 130% of the salary cap basically acted to continue to subsidise clubs and, and basically allow them to continue operating beyond their inherent means. And so 
It really speaks to the, to the deeper culture of the sport, that reliance on television money. There was a point a few years ago where television revenue was 67% of the overall revenue of the NRL. It's now down to 61%, which is still the highest of the codes and basically the highest in Australian commercial sport. So there's still very much this reliance on money that allows clubs to not necessarily focus on growing their own businesses. Mm. And we can see that in the membership bases. You know, there's basically been, once the NRL had a, a push towards a membership culture, you know, they were able to get 200,000 people signed up relatively quickly because those were kind of the low-hanging fruit of people who were probably ripe and ready to become members. But basically over the past three, four years, the, the NRL's basically experienced, you know, COVID aside, no growth in its, in its membership tally in the last three, four years. Mm. So it's just really struggling to grow that sort of membership culture and, and that culture of, of NRL teams being able to be autonomous and independently profitable. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm a bit dizzy from all these stats and this is intense stuff for a rugby league tragic like myself. So it's kind of like a bit of medicine that I need. But let's take a step back for a second and try understand why Australia is so split from a footballing perspective. How did something like Victorian rules muscle its way into the psyche of certain parts of the country? What, why are we so split from a football code perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the book's structured to look at the present and then the past and the future. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I think some of the stuff from the past is in some ways the most interesting parts of the book uh, because we kind of take for granted in some ways how accidental or unintentional decisions in the past have been in mm. terms of that their profound impact on the present and some of these stories i think because of the cross-code nature of the book haven't necessarily been told in great detail before but essentially you know if we look back at the past it's been a complete almost coincidence of history as to how a certain area became a rugby league or a rugby area versus an AFL area. And so if we look at a place like Perth, the thing to remember is if we go back into the you know, 1880 and 1890, etc., we've got this vast country with lots of independent colonies that are sort of connected loosely, but essentially all operating quite autonomously simply because they're so geographically apart from each other. Mm. So each individual colony is really making decisions in its colony independently of all the others. So if we look at a place like Perth, you know, it's a little known fact that Perth actually played rugby for three years from 1881 till eventually there was a coup by the Australian rule supporters, which led to the formation of WAFA in 1885. Mm. So, you know, in Perth, rugby was played first for three years. And if they had organised themselves a bit better and survived that initial coup, then who's to say that you know rugby could have easily become the dominant code of western australia for long enough for rugby league to you know have its schism and then potentially get a foothold in wa you know in tasmania tasmania played both rugby and soccer and afl melbourne rules victorian rules was actually the last of the football codes to get to the island and it basically came in 1878 with one guy wh kundi who came from victoria and basically became the code's advocate. So, again, AFL was last into Tasmania. And Brisbane, an AFL club or a Victorian rules club, was actually the first football club in Brisbane. And Victorian rules actually had the upper hand until the New South Wales Rugby Union stepped in in 1882 and underwrote a tour. And that basically is how Queensland became a rugby state. So... It's a combination of some strategic sort of advocacy, but then also a hell of a lot of just coincidence and luck that's determined how each individual colony chose its football code. 
And, you know, once each of the various colonies chose their football codes in the 1880s, that's basically what they've stuck with for the better part of 140 years since. So, yeah, critical decisions made 140, 50 years ago have basically stayed embedded ever since. Yeah, and all quite random. That's a very interesting part of the book, so I recommend people have a look into that. And while we're on the past... Can you tell us about universal football, if you would, and how close we came to being a universal football nation? For me, this is probably the most interesting part of the book for me. And so when I've been speaking about the book in interviews and whatnot or to people, and the question is asked to me, you know, what's the most significant moment in the history of, you know, the Code Wars or in Australian sport? My answer to them is actually the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand <laughs> and the precipitation of World War One. And the reason I say that is because if it wasn't for the timing of World War One, there wouldn't be a rugby league and there wouldn't be an Australian rules. There would be a sport called universal football which was the amalgamation of the two in 1914-1915. So that's a little bit of a backstory. When Rugby League was formed in 1908, JJ Gildner, one of the founding fathers, was an entrepreneur and realised that he had this sort of embryonic game and actually he met with his AFL counterparts at that time to suggest a merger of the two because, of course, even 100 years ago, everyone realised it didn't make sense to have two different football codes in two different parts of the country competing against each other and expending resources unnecessarily. And then so from that initial meeting, nothing really came of it. But then in 1914-15, it actually developed momentum and it actually looked like the two codes were going to merge to the point where the New South Wales Rugby League had voted to accept the merger. The VFL at the time had accepted it. So, you know, you can only imagine if this happened today and you had, you know, the Richmond Tigers, you know, the Essendon Bombers, you had all these clubs in a room voting to do a merger with Rugby League. You know, it's 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 so hard to imagine yeah. in the modern day what that would look like. But this literally occurred 100 years ago that basically there was a broad brush agreement to merge the games. What that meant was that for 1915, there was a plan to slowly hybridise the games into one product by changing the rules. So um, Rugby League agreed to add in throw-ups and bounces when the ball went out. AFL agreed to add a crossbar. And basically, there was going to be this period of amalgamating the codes slowly, year by year, until they were playing the same sport. But unfortunately, because of the breakout of World War One. The final approval of the AFL at the national level didn't get done. And really, that's the only reason that we aren't now following universal football. That would have combined the whole country under one football code. Yes, well, um, unbelievable, really. Universal football, it's a, it's a subtle name too. They didn't uh, go too hard with, with the title there, universal <laughs> football, goodness gracious. That would have been very interesting. Just one thing on that, Hunter. 1908, of course, Rugby League was founded in Australia. We both know that it was founded in 1895 in the UK. I just mentioned that because uh, I will get mail if I don't correct that. So just just putting that in right there. Now, Hunter, the billion-dollar question, in your opinion, what should Rugby League do to try and wrest back some ground from the AFL? Because... The AFL is well and truly entrenched in both Sydney and Brisbane now. Yes, it plays second fiddle, but it's a pretty strong second fiddle compared to the second fiddle the NRL plays in the AFL states. Should the NRL be defending their home territories and firming them up with a second Brisbane team, for example, or should they be looking for incremental growth in non-rugby league states such as South or Western Australia? Sure. I'll zoom out in one sense and sort of say I think there's three kind of buckets of recommendations that I'll probably make. The first is 
to really focus on trying to develop fandom culture. And so I think for too long, the game has been lax in terms of thinking about how you actually create active fandom. Obviously, you know, the Soccer Tribe does this best. I don't know if you've attended A-League games, but mm. when they're at the peak of their fan culture, 10 to 15,000 fans were able to translate into incredible at game experiences the nrl doesn't need to replicate that but it's crazy to think that the nrl allegedly has you know five to six million fans and that generates great television audiences great digital engagement but it hasn't really translated into attendances memberships and more overt signs of fandom and so i think there's as we spoke earlier a cultural stigma that has to be overcome uh, if they really want to get to that same level as as the afl Part of, I think, building that fan culture is around scheduling. So I think one of the weaknesses is that the NRL has largely let its clubs make its own determinations around where they play. And I think the NRL needs to probably be more interventionalist in terms of how it schedules matches in terms of its location. You know, the NRL already controls scheduling over games themselves. But if, if I was in control, I'd probably engineer a draw where there's one marquee Sydney Derby every week played in a major stadium on a Sunday afternoon at, you know, a Bank West, a rebuilt SFS or an ANZ. So I think fans need to fundamentally start seeing full stadiums mm. to build that sense that NRL attendance is this fashionable activity. And I think that's what's kind of missing at the moment. And it's not helped by the fact that the scheduling doesn't really encourage that kind of game of the round experience mm. that they potentially could if they scheduled more interventionalists. Mm. And so I think, you know, there's no shortage of NRL in Sydney, you know. So would it really harm rugby league in Sydney if each of the Sydney clubs only played nine games in Sydney and three of the lesser games against interstate rivals were played somewhere else. I'm not so sure. So I think, you know, the NRL could easily say to all the Sydney NRL teams, you know, we're going to play nine of your games in Sydney and we're going to get a pool of games, you know, three from each of you that we're going to use as a way to expand elsewhere, even if those areas will never have teams themselves. Um, and that would be a good way to, I guess, change the supply and demand curve where you're really restricting the Sydney teams to playing the better Sydney games in Sydney while giving them a bank of games that they could take to other markets where whether that's you know, country towns, growth markets, international markets, etc. Mm -hmm. So scheduling, I think, plays a big part. And then, yeah, in terms of expansion, you know, we've, we've talked before about the growth of the AFL and, you know, their strength hasn't been that they've necessarily stolen fans per se, but it's the fact that they've been able to fragment support so that even if you're, you know, a Rabbitohs fan, the Swans are now your secondary team. And yeah, even if the Swans are a secondary team, that's a few dollars or a few hours that the AFL is incrementally taking away from the NRL. And so I'm an expansionist in, in logic in that I think there needs to be WA team, that needs to be an Adelaide team, and they're not going to overtake the Eagles, they're not going to overtake Port or the Crows any time in the next 100 years. But by simply being in those states, you can get people to incrementally introduce those teams into their consideration set and achieve some of that fragmentation that the AFL has been very successful at doing mm. in, in the northern markets. So I'm, I'm definitely on the expansionist bandwagon there, simply because, you know, the best defense is a good offense. And, you know, the AFL's basically spent the better part of 50 years not having to worry about defending their own heartlands mm. because, you know, no one's bothered to attack them. So they've spent all their time being able to invest in their own expansion because they've never really had to defend their own heartland markets. So I think it's pretty crazy that expanding into AFL states seems off the table and certainly not what I would advocate on a personal level. Yes, well, I mean, couldn't have said it better myself. I'm 100% with you there. I am keen on Perth especially. And while I am keen on Perth, I should say 
you know, it makes a world of sense to me. I can see where the NRL is coming from with the second Brisbane team. It wouldn't have been my choice, but I can see where they're coming from because Queensland and Brisbane in particular, they seem quite vulnerable at the moment and everything's sort of like playing into each other. All the different factors are playing into each other. Now, the confluence of certain trends that are going on in Queensland at the moment, an emerging Brisbane Lions team, a limping Brisbane Broncos team. You mentioned in your book some concerning TV ratings trends for rugby league in Queensland. And it's continued this year, just over the Easter weekend, just past the Brisbane Lions game, almost outrated the admittedly ordinary All-Sydney Rugby League game on the Thursday night. Then on the Friday, Brisbane got another pasting, which continued their trend of very subdued ratings in Brisbane, although it was comfortably higher than either of the Thursday night games. So while Rugby League is still the preferred TV sport, the gap is closing. And so while... You know, it's probably to do with cyclical factors and the the poor state of the Broncos. I can see where the NRL is panicking a bit there. But like you say, the best form of defense is offense. So it's a tricky one, though. I I think, you know, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You're right. You know, there's a lot of worrying trends in in Queensland. It'll be good for the NRL to diversify Mm. interest away from one team to avoid, you know, the situation the NRL's in now there. So I think it definitely is understandable to have a second Queensland team. So that doesn't necessarily concern me. But what does concern me is when you have the head of the game, Peter Vlandy, saying New South Wales is the left hand, Queensland is the right hand. Mm. Um, You know, language like that, I don't think is concerning conducive to growing fan support even if you don't plan to put a team into Perth you know if you just set all the Sydney teams well you know West Tigers versus Cowboys is all the Titans is not a strong marquee game this doesn't add much value to you you know if you just developed a pool of games which you could take to Mm. other markets you could still benefit you could achieve some expansion benefits without necessarily placing a team in there and you know I think I'm very grateful for Peter Volandis because some of his quotes make for really great reading in terms of in terms of the book and is very proudly rugby league which is great as well but he's very antagonistic towards the AFL Mm. and you know it's not a coincidence that the AFL's language towards rugby league is very passive, whereas rugby league language towards AFL is very aggressive. Mm. And so, you know, sport is very much linked to our social identities. And, you know, if you're an AFL fan sitting in Melbourne and you've got the chairman of the NRL saying Melbourne's this dreary, stinky city, you know, is that conducive to growing the overall sport in a, in a national sense? Well, Hunter, it, it, <laughs> it beggars belief, really, when you consider Melbourne are the premiers of the National Rugby League as well. So, you know, I've got no idea where he's coming from on that one. So it's, it's a, a strange one. But uh, anyway, a lot of people seem to uh, like what he's doing. So, you know, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Okay, Hunter, we are almost out of time. One more question, if I may, for the road. From your analysis of sporting consumer and general consumer attitudes, how does the future look for the respective codes, in particular rugby league? Sure. So I'll try I'll try to keep it brief. You know, I think each code has its challenges and opportunities. Working from the bottom up, you know, soccer as a sport continues to grow in popularity and the popularity of soccer has never really been in question. You know, we've known soccer's this great popular thing globally for the better part of 40, 50 years, mm. but it continues not to translate in terms of domestic soccer. So their big challenge is how do you convert this global interest in soccer and this globalizing sport consumer into someone whose interest can be retained by domestic soccer? And whoever solves that question is a genius. Mm. <laughs> Rugby union's biggest challenge is that they've got an aging 
and diminishing fan base. The strength of the yen and the euro means that their ability to retain superstar players is as weak as it's ever been in the professional era. And they've invested no money in junior development. So, you know, how do they now become a mainstream sport when no one even really recognises a single wallaby? So, again, their timing, the timing to go onto free-to-air television has been terrible because they've done it at the exact moment when the strength of their product is probably at its weakest. Mm. So how do they get new fans when their product is potentially in a decline part of the cycle? You know, the AFL's biggest challenge for a period of time has been its game style. There's a lot of criticism around congestion, around the ball, low-scoring Dow games. And, you know, from their perspective, they seem to have very much solved that with recent rule changes, which have, by contrast to rugby league, have been, you know, widely lauded as improving the game. Mm. Whereas in rugby league, maybe we haven't quite found that balance. You know, for for the NRL, the biggest challenge, there's a few, I think, behaviorally around cultural norms. You know, player transgressions, which may have been just accepted and resilient in the past. Cultural standards are growing and changing such that I think tolerance towards transgressions, particularly around gender, are declining. And that tolerance towards is declining. How does rugby league adjust to that? Because if they don't adjust to that, you know, getting you know fans to buy into rugby league will become more difficult. Concussion safety is again another big challenge. Last year, there was a player who had seizures on the field from having a concussion. You know, how do you convince people to play the game and support the game when you have such serious injuries seemingly every single week, every single game? And then the last one is really just how do you get these six million people to really tap into their passion and really get them to do more than watch games and um, click like on Facebook. So again, all challenges, each code has its own challenges and opportunities. And it, as the book sometimes refers to, you know, in some ways I consider the NRL the sleeping giant because it's got these six million fans and they haven't really even done very much to try gather them. So um, there's so much potential, but also so many big challenges facing rugby league heading into the future. Fascinating stuff. Okay, Hunter, we are out of time. There is so much food for thought. I don't think I have to cook for another month. Congratulations once again on the book. A thoroughly interesting read. I really hope rugby league administrators across Australia and the UK grab a copy of your book and ask themselves some hard questions. And of course, a lot more in the book about other codes too, for those interested. So Dr. Hunter Fujak, all the best for the future. Go well. And thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks for having me. Progressive Rugby League. Yes, hard questions are the hardest to ask, of course. The risk, if we don't, is that we fall into the trap of focusing on and getting a false sense of security from cherry-picked stats. The odd high-rating State of Origin game or a good Magic Weekend crowd. But if you do that and ignore the broader trends, if you don't take a step back to survey the landscape with a wider lens, then things can slip away without you even noticing. Something about the wood something about the trees you know what i'm talking about okay let's wrap it up until we next meet somewhere along the x-axis of rugby league related graph rugby league, call me and see ya